Well, I'll invite you to turn with me again to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, and verse 4. When we read the New Testament, we have some very clear statements in the, in the New Testament about the fact that the Old Testament scriptures are primarily and ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. That they're speaking of him, that they're looking ahead to him and pointing toward him. An example of that is what we read earlier from Luke chapter 24, where Jesus there reveals to these Emmaus Road disciples, as they are commonly known, how it is that the Old Testament was really about him and how his death and resurrection was a necessity. And he argues that and proves that to them by using the Old Testament scriptures. And they recall later on, after they realized it was the Lord Jesus who was teaching them these things, how their hearts burned within them as he opened up the scriptures to them, as he explained those things to them, as they understood God's plan in the Old Testament and how it was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. There are many other examples. For ex- one, more, one more, John chapter 5, verse 19. There, Jesus himself is dealing with those who are opposing him, while simultaneously claiming the authority of Moses. They're claiming to be believers of what Moses said, but they're, and they're rejecting Jesus on that basis. And Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So there's great irony in what they're attempting to do. No, no, if you really did believe Moses, as you claimed, you would believe me because he was talking about me, he says. So we have these kinds of clear statements made, and then we have the examples of apostolic preaching and instruction in the book of Acts and in the epistles, showing us that indeed the Old Testament really is pointing ahead to and instructing us about Christ, such that when he comes on the scene, so to speak, it's spoken of as fulfillment, it's not, hey, here's something new that's right out of left field for you. It's, it's a fulfillment of everything that has come before. So we have these clear statements of this. But sometimes when we're reading through the Old Testament, I think it can be difficult to see these things. It's a big book. There's a lot in there. And the details can sometimes overwhelm. And things like, typology, Old Testament pictures fulfilled in Christ, this can sometimes be hard to grasp and sometimes difficult to know how it works. Um, We see some prophecies, certainly in the Old Testament, that are very clearly fulfilled in Christ. We see passages like Isaiah 53, perhaps, and see how clearly that's talking about Christ and his death on the cross. But even then, when we see some of these things that are clearly fulfilled in Christ Jesus, when we read about them in the Old Testament, it can sometimes still be a little bit fuzzy about how to properly grasp, uh, how to properly grasp them and what's going on, how it works in the context of the Old Testament. So an example of that would be earlier in Isaiah chapter 7, where we're told there about a child who would be a sign how a virgin would give birth, and this child would be called Emmanuel. And of course, there's no question whatsoever that this has an ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. We're reminded of that at least every December, multiple times. So we know it's about Christ, but when we read it in the context of Isaiah chapter 7, 
We can sometimes wonder, how does this work? It's spoken to Ahaz. Uh, is there some sort of reference to Ahaz's son, but there's a greater fulfillment in Christ? Sometimes this can be difficult. And so what I hope to do as we continue to work our way through the book of Genesis is hopefully to, to see and point out more about how it is that Moses wrote of Christ, to see it in the text as we go. And certainly there are times when we will see it in very specific matters, in specific texts that we can call prophecies about Christ Jesus, fulfilled in Christ. So, for example, in Genesis 3.15, we have this promise that God makes in the midst of cursing man and cursing the earth and cursing the serpent. There's this promise about an offspring of the woman, of a woman who's going to come and bruise the head of the serpent. It's a very specific statement that's fulfilled in Christ. And then later in chapter 12, we have this promise to Abraham that one of his offspring would bring about a blessing upon all the families of the earth. These are very specifically about Christ Jesus. But what I want to do today is zoom out a little bit and see how the entirety of the book of Genesis also reveals to us that this book is indeed driving us toward the coming of Christ. The very structure of the book of Genesis points us in this direction. It's not uncommon when we start a sermon series on a book to do this kind of a thing, to have a bit of a, an overview, give a, the big picture. Here's what the book is about. Here's where we're going to go as we work our way through it, etc., but if you remember back to our beginning of, of Genesis, we never really did that. We basically just launched into Genesis 1-1 and, and had at it. And there's a few reasons for that. But part of the reason for that was that I was saving some of the big picture stuff for when we come to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. And initially that might seem like an odd place to do that. But hopefully uh, this will be clearer and make more sense as we go. So what I'm hoping we will see today is that the book of Genesis is indeed concerned with presenting the early stages of God's plan of redemption and the earthly lineage of Christ, his human lineage, by gradually narrowing the focus from God's creation of man in general to the promised line of Abraham specifically, from which, ultimately, Christ would come. This is Moses' concern in Genesis. Genesis is, does give us a history of the beginning of creation itself and of man in general, creation of the nation of Israel. But even more specific than that, it is narrowing the focus on the promised offspring to come, an individual. And my hope is that as we go through this today and, and on into coming weeks as well, that we will see better and maybe more clearly the unity of the scriptures. That they indeed are truly inspired by one divine author ultimately. And they tell a unified story of redemption in Christ Jesus. 
that we might see this and grasp this a little more, that we might have even greater confidence in the Scriptures as the Word of God and have our faith in Christ further established that this is not something that the Old Te- New Testament authors are just trying to sort of, I don't know, fit and squeeze into the Old Testament and do violence to the text, but that this is right there and intentionally there from the beginning. So let's read chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, this verse, in maybe a couple of ways, seems a little bit odd at first. When I read something like, these are the generations of, I would expect a human being to be named right after that. But instead, we're given these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Initially, to me, that stands out as interesting, and and I'm not sure initially what exactly to make of that. But what I want to show you is that this phrase, these are the generations of, serves as a heading. It serves as a heading here in chapter 2, verse 4. And throughout Genesis, when it is used elsewhere, it is used as a heading that introduces and begins a new section in the book of Genesis. There are ten different places where we find this phrase, these are the generations of. There are ten of these sections that divide up the book for us. And so I want to show you that, explain that a little bit, that these are indeed headings, hopefully make that case. And then explain the significance of those headings. Why bother talk about this? Um, so we'll, we'll eventually look at all of these places, all 10 of these places where we find this heading and see the significance of it. How ultimately this is pointing us towards this offspring, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin uh, the headings in Genesis. So, as I said, this phrase, these are the generations of, serve as section headings. And normally, we'll see as we go here, there is a name attached to it, as we might expect. These are the generations of Adam, or of Noah, or Esau, or Jacob, etc. Of course, that makes sense. We would expect, as we hear this word generations, to think of descendants, to think of family line when we hear those words. And so the fact that chapter 2, verse 4 here attaches this phrase to these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, again, seems a bit odd at first, but it makes sense if we understand that this is a a heading of a new section. Moreover, as we will see as we go through the other section headings, the person that is named in these generation of statements hereafter is not always, not typically, the main person of that section, but rather is the point of departure for that section. So, for example, in chapter 5, verse 1, a new section will begin there. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. But the section which follows, it begins with Adam, but really goes on to tell of his descendants, all the way down to Noah. 
And so the generations of Adam uses Adam as a point of departure, but really mainly focuses on Adam's descendants. So then if we come back to chapter 2 and verse 4, it makes sense then to have these are the generations of the heavens and the earth because there was no person prior to Adam to begin the story with, to launch from, to tell us about Adam. There was just God himself and creation, what he had made. And so while it initially might seem a little out of place to have these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, this is ultimately alerting us that there is a new section beginning here, which begins and launches, takes as its starting point God's creation to tell us now what has become of God's creation. So... The understanding that these are headings of Genesis, this is not unique to what I'm saying. This is a fairly widely held view today. And I would submit to you that it is a far more compelling view than what is an, another typical way and popular way for people to divide up Genesis. So one of the ways people divide up Genesis is they'll see two major sections, Genesis 1 through 11, which tells of creation through to the events of the Tower of Babel. And then chapters 12 to 50, which is the story of Abraham and all of his descendants thereafter. But this division is often used against, to argue against the unity of Genesis. So many people, what, the reason they, they split it up that way is Genesis 1 to 11 is a little, covers some different kind of material Certainly chapters 12 to 50, you see it begins with Abraham and follows through his various descendants. And, and, and Genesis 1 to 12 reads maybe a little bit differently. And people will capitalize on that. And often it'll be in the form of an attack upon Scripture. They'll try to argue that Genesis 1 to 12 is something that's kind of just honestly somewhat mashed together. Different accounts that Moses is just kind of sticking together at the beginning. Others will argue that it's not really meant to give us a, an actual history of events. That's, again, kind of a choppy collection of different sources. But if, on the other hand, we understand these are the generations of, to be main headings of this book, and to be the main way that we should divide up this book, then it does help to reveal the unity of Genesis. As these headings are found on either side of that chapter 11 and 12 divide. It pulls it all together. It is not, in fact, Genesis, a mash of different sources into some disjointed whole. Rather, it is a carefully constructed book that is concerned to show the beginning, not only of creation itself, but of redemption's story and the Savior that is to come. So then these headings divide the book of Genesis into 11 different sections. Section number one is what we've already looked at, the seven days of creation as we would call them. And then there's going to be 10 of these different generations of sections and headings which will narrow the story in on a particular family line. So let's examine that a little more now. This gradually narrowing focus. Maybe just before we do that quickly, just consider, again, the word generations, generations of. The very fact that 
that word is used as a major way of dividing the book of Genesis in and of itself reveals to us part of a major concern of the book of Genesis is lineage, is this family line. Again, this idea of Genesis and the Old Testament driving toward Christ ultimately is not some afterthought. Again, it's not just something that Christians now or New Testament authors are trying to read back into Genesis because we're trying to just make this thing work. It's built right into the very structure of the book of Genesis, that it's concerned with generations and with lineage, ultimately Christ. So we're going to walk through these headings now. This will maybe be a little different from the typical sermon, maybe even feel a little bit more like a Bible study. Uh, but hopefully this will be worth our while. And I'll, I'd encourage you just to maybe have your Bible open and be prepared to flip as we go through and see this overview together. So chapter 2, verse 4 again. Let's read that again. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So having laid out for us God's creation of the universe, the book now shifts to the next section and explains to us what then became of this creation. And as we carry on into chapter 2 in coming weeks, we see that it backs up to fill in some more, some more of the details of God's creation of man. We see, of course, that God created this garden of Eden and placed man within it. We see Adam's covenant obligations before the Lord and, and the way that he created Eve as a helper for Adam. Now, some call this and refer to this as a second creation account. As if Moses, or they might say whoever, wrote Genesis, just takes these two things and attaches them together uh, for us to just mull over. They're very different. They'll, they'll try and stress the differences, they'll say, between chapters 1 and chapter 2. to try to say these are two different, you know, understandings and, and creation narratives. And, and, you know, whoever wrote this is not smart enough to see that or whatever. They're not trying to give you real history. Now, that conclusion isn't at all necessary, even if we don't understand chapter 2, verse 4 to be a section heading. But the reality of chapter 2, verse 4, as the start of a section that runs through to the end of chapter 4, only bolsters the case that this isn't a second creation account, but it is rather the account of something that came from the creation of the heavens and the earth, namely, man. The story is... Moving on now. And to do so, as it's going to move on, it's going to back up and give some further information on the creation of man and woman. And the section, moreover, also goes on not only to give a little more information about the creation of man, but to go on to talk about the fall of man into sin. God's subsequent cursing of man, of the earth, and the serpent. In chapter 3, in the removal of man from the Garden of Eden, Adam being banned from it and barred. And then chapter 4 goes on to also tell us about the proliferation, the spreading of evil upon the earth. It tells us about Cain murdering his brother. It goes on to talk about Lamech and his evil that he accomplished as well. So chapter 2 is not some sort of awkward 
second creation account attached on there. It's part of a section that is intentionally given to us, detailing vital information about God, about humanity, sin, and about the promise of redemption. In this section, we do have the first promise of a man who would come and defeat man's enemy, the devil. That's chapter 3, verse 15, if you want to look at that with me. God speaking says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is often spoken of as the proto-gospel or the first announcement of the gospel. And we will certainly look at that text in more detail uh, in in a few weeks' time. We also see in this section Adam's faith Even after the curse, he names Eve, Eve, the mother of the living, even though he deserves death. We see Adam's faith on display in this section and the faith of others at the end of the section, end of chapter 4, as we see others began calling upon the name of the Lord in those days. So one writer says the first generations of section here traces what became of the universe God so marvelously created. It was cursed through disobedience so that, so that deterioration deterioration, and decay spread rapidly through the human race. And of course, it does also outline or at least mention the very first mention of the promised offspring to come who would defeat Satan. Also, you might have noticed in verse 4 of chapter 2, We have the first use of Yahweh, of the name of God. It is written here as Lord in ESV with all capital letters, small uppercase O-R-D. This is further indication that this narrative in Genesis is shifting here in chapter 2, verse 4, intentionally from the big picture of creation to God's covenant relationship with Adam since the Almighty's covenant name, Yahweh, is the name that is used here. And as Moses would have written this and the Israelites would have first read what Moses writes here, they would have instantly connected the dots and realized and understood and known for certain that Yahweh, with whom they'd entered into covenant at Sinai, is none other than the Almighty God who had created all things, including, as we see in section 2 here, in chapter 2, Adam and Eve. So this initial, this first generations of section goes from chapter 2, verse 4, through to the end of chapter 4, outlining again God's covenant with Adam, the violation of that covenant, man's fall into sin, the curse, the removal of man from Eden, the promise of this offspring to come, and the proliferation of evil upon the earth. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, we have... Another, the second, generations of section. If you look there in 5 verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So the narrative from there in chapter 5 launches from Adam, but it goes on to talk about Seth's line. Notice it leaves behind Cain. It also, in the words we just read, mentions that Adam had other sons and daughters, but they're not spoken of with any detail whatsoever. We don't even know their names. It's just mentioned almost in passing that he had other sons and daughters. Why? Because the story is intentionally narrowing in on a particular line. Namely here, it's the line of Seth. And so in this section, we have genealogy, Seth's line, We're also told in this section of the increasing corruption upon the earth. There's increasing corruption, but even with that, we're told of one man named Lamech. This is a different Lamech, not the evil one. Uh, But this man, Lamech, had a son. And in chapter 5, verse 29, here's what he says. He has a son saying, names him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed... This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Here is a man who has a son and he's looking forward to this promise coming to pass, this promised child, one who would do what? He says, bring relief from our work and from the painful toil, this curse that God had put man under. And the section ends with Noah finding favor or finding grace in God's eyes. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, we have another section begin. It says, these are the generations of Noah. And this section runs through to the end of chapter 9. shows us the flood, how God wiped out wicked man from the face of the earth, but preserved a line through Noah and his sons. Through the ark. And after the flood, there is a recommissioning of man through Noah and through the Noahic covenant, as it is often called. But we also see Noah is not the ultimate child of promise either. And as that section comes to a close, we see a curse that is pronounced upon one of Noah's sons, Ham, specifically Ham's son, Canaan, while Shem and Japheth, Noah's other sons, are blessed. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, we have the start of another section. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then it goes on to have, it was favored, another genealogy listed there. Genealogy of the sons of Noah as they spread out and begin to form nations, it even says. But then, as we come to chapter 11, we again see the evil of man spreading upon the earth, the rebellion of man against the commission to spread out and fill the earth. They gather together in rebellion against God, and we have the Tower of Babel. And so God confuses their language, and he scatters them again. So now as they form nations, they can't even understand each other. They will speak different languages. And then in 11.10, chapter 11, verse 10, the story narrows in yet again with another section These are the generations of Shem in chapter 11, verse 10. So the focus moves away from 
all of the many descendants of Noah, sons, uh, you know, who spread out even after Babel. It narrows in to the line of Shem specifically. And this short section here gives us a genealogy of Shem's descendants right up to this man named Terah and his sons, one of whom is Abram, or Abraham as he would become known as. And so in chapter 11, verse 27, we have the start of yet another section, and this one is a long one. It goes through right into chapter 25. And so in 11:27, here's how that begins. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, later Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So this section launches from Terah and tells of his descendants. Particularly, it focuses in on Abraham. And of course, Lot is mentioned as well, and he factors into this story too, as you know. But the main focus is on Abraham. As God calls Abraham and gives him the promised blessing of being made into a great nation, and God makes the promise that in you, in chapter 12, verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now if you remember back to Galatians, not that long ago, Paul explicitly refers to this as a promise that Christ would come from Abraham's offspring and bless the nations of the earth through the salvation that he purchased and secured. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but to referring to one. And to your offspring. And then he says, who is Christ? And earlier in Galatians 3 verse 8, Paul tells us that the promise of blessing to the nations was the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. So Paul in Galatians is rightly understanding Genesis. I think we obviously should, would acknowledge that. He's rightly understanding Genesis. That the concern of the book is to focus in on the line of promise. The specific offspring who would come from the line of Abraham. That this promise to bless the nations, the families of the earth, through the offspring of Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus and his coming. So the story of Genesis at this point, in chapter 12, has gone from Adam and all of his descendants to Noah, then from Noah and his descendants spreading out over the earth, down to this man, Abraham. And, and much of this section, which goes through to chapter 25, verse 11, deals with the reality that Sarah was barren. And how it was that Abraham and Sarah had to await a child. This is not just any old trouble conceiving that they're having. Remember, God has promised through Abraham and through his wife Sarah this 
Ultimately, an offspring would come one day. So for her to be barren and Abraham to have no child through her, is God going to keep his word and bring about the Savior or not? And they had to wait for God's promise. And you recall, they tried to cheat it. Sarah comes up with this plan, gives to Abraham her slave woman, Hagar. And Abraham has a son by her. His name was Ishmael, but Ishmael was not the promised son. That's clear in the text of Genesis. We'll see that more obviously when we get there. We talked about it in Galatians as well. We see God protecting Sarah on a number of occasions. We see him protect her from Pharaoh and from Abimelech later two times when Abraham said, she is my sister and she was taken to be someone else's wife, but God intervened so that she would not have a child by any other man. Guarding the promise. And of course, finally we know Isaac is born. The son of Abraham and Sarah's old age. He begins to grow and Isaac himself in time takes a wife, Rebecca. And so the section ends with Abraham's death. And then in chapter 25, verse 12, we begin a new section. And it begins, these are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Again, the story of Genesis has already made it clear at this point, we're moving fast and skipping over many things, obviously, but it's made it clear that this is not the promised son. So what this section does here is it ties off the other line of Abraham, the line through Ishmael. God had made certain promises to bless Ishmael as well. God fulfilled those things. His descendants were told in this section, which is primarily genealogy, but we're told they settled in the direction of Assyria. That is not the land God promised to Abraham. It's a different land. And so this section served to wrap up, if you will, the Ishmael side of the story. And the story can then resume in verse 19 with this eighth section, this eighth generations of section. And so it resumes in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. So now the story focuses on Isaac and his children, Jacob and Esau. Those two twins were nations, we're told, struggling within Rebekah's womb. And the Lord says in verse 23, this is chapter 25 still, verse 23, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God chose the younger, Jacob, to be the one to carry forward the line of promise. Of course, you no doubt recall the ongoing tension and struggle between Jacob and Esau throughout their days. Jacob ends up marrying. He ends up with 12 sons. If you jump ahead to chapter 35, 10 to 12, we see there the promise of Abraham, the promise that had been confirmed to Isaac is now then in chapter 35 given to Jacob. And God renames Jacob Israel, saying that it is through his offspring that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. And then that section ends with Jacob and Esau burying Isaac, their father. And then in chapter 36, we have the second last section, which begins with the words, these are the generations of Esau. 
And we're given a genealogy of Esau's descendants and where they settled. And like with Ishmael, this ties off that line. This is a descendant of Abraham, it's true, but this is not the line of promise. Then beginning in chapter 37, verse 2, we have the final section under the title, These Are the Generations of Jacob. And of course, this then goes on to tell the story of Jacob's sons with much of the emphasis upon Joseph. And it recounts how it is that all Jacob himself and all of his sons ended up in the land of Egypt. Again, even that, think of how God miraculously raised up and used Joseph so that his family, the descendants of Jacob, through whom this promised seed is going to come, would be preserved through this horrific famine that was everywhere. And so they end up in Egypt. This is survival for them. It's God's providence and blessing upon them. And of course, this sets up the book of Exodus and God calling the people out of Egypt and ultimately bringing them into the promised land. But when Genesis ends, it is very clear that it is from among this group that the promised offspring of Abraham would come, that this Messiah, this Savior would come. Even as we get to the end in the final chapter, 50, verse 24, this is what Joseph says to his brothers. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. The book ends, Genesis does, with God's promises to Abraham not yet fulfilled. But Joseph is looking ahead, even as he's dying, to say, God will fulfill what he has said. He is looking ahead in faith, believing God's promise. God will be faithful to fulfill his word. God will indeed come to the descendants of Jacob. And he will bring them out of this land and into the land that he promised to give them. The land he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And as God would fulfill his promise to them, it is not just a promise of land for Israel, but of a particular individual, a particular offspring who would come, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the very structure of the book of Genesis the whole of the book with the, just highlighted and seen and, and helped along with the use of these headings shows us that the concern of Moses as he wrote this was to trace out this promise of an offspring of the woman who would come and to and fix what went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. We've gone from humanity in general in chapter 1 to a specific family, the offspring of Jacob, the nation of Israel. It is from this people that the son would come. And so, do you see how even when we're not looking at a direct prophecy that we can trace as explicit fulfillment in Christ Jesus, this book is indeed all about Christ Jesus, looking ahead to him, anticipating his coming, giving us his earthly lineage, And so Jesus comes along when the Messiah comes 
And there are those, if you remember from the early chapters of the Gospels, Matthew, and we see it in Luke, there are many who miss Jesus, obviously, and he's refuting them and arguing with them throughout his earthly ministry. But there are some who are waiting for this child. They're waiting for this offspring to come, the consolation of Israel. And so Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And it is not simply that Moses in a couple of places, if you look really hard, uh, maybe says something about Jesus. It is about him. He wrote of Christ. This is the offspring that Genesis is telling us about. It is a, a wonderful thing to see and to read the scriptures as a unity. To see the redemption plan of God unfolding for us within its pages. From the first book of the Bible, it is showing us the story of redemption that God put in motion as man sinned. So many people approach the Bible nervous about it. And, and, and we hear the claims of people who want to try to highlight what they see as inconsistencies and problems and want to blow it all up and, and say, see, you know, they cast doubt upon the fact that God has inspired this. It, Genesis is ground zero for this. But if we see it as a unity, if we even start there, it makes a thousand times more sense, not only of Genesis itself, but of the whole of Scripture. The New Testament writers are not making stuff up when they tell us it's about Christ. Christ himself, obviously, was not lying in these things. And it is not just that there's a couple of places within it. The whole thing is driving us toward Christ. And as the good news that Christ has come, and that he has died on the cross, and he has risen from the dead on behalf of sinners, as this good news is proclaimed, that there is forgiveness of sins in his name, we are proclaiming the very promise that God made to Abraham way back when, way back at the beginning of, of the Bible. This is what Galatians, again, if you recall, was, is telling us. It's the gospel in seed form that God promised to Abraham. The way that God blesses the families of the earth and blesses the nations of the earth is through this message that this offspring has come. He has defeated sin, defeated death itself, that there's reconciliation with the God against whom we have sinned in Christ's name. Forgiveness, eternal life. This is the way in which God is, blesses the nations of the earth. This is why we then see in Acts, the gospel then goes out 
The offspring has come. The blessing is here. The announcement then goes out into all the earth where this message is proclaimed. It is not some intrusion. It is not some distortion of Judaism. It's the fulfillment of it all. By faith, sinners are reconciled to God, forgiven, united with Christ. Redemption comes to us in and through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is by faith also that we now, at this stage in the history of redemption, we're looking at the book of Genesis, which is the early stages of it, the early history of it. Now, as we live here in 2023, at this point, we are also by faith looking ahead to when the Son of God will return. And he will consummate his kingdom and establish the new heavens and the new earth where his people will dwell with him in perfect righteousness, where nothing unclean will enter into it. When this history of redemption that we are reading of in Genesis will come to its completion and we will have eternity with our God, our saving, merciful God and with his people. This is what scripture is telling us. This is what it is laying out before us. This is the unified story that we find all throughout its pages. That behind all of the earthly writers of the scripture stands God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. His word is worthy to be trusted. His promise is sure. This is what we hold to. Whatever's coming. This is what we hold to in the face of death itself. That this is not the end. It is not over. There are promises God has made still to come. What a kindness the kindness of God to give us his word, to reveal these things to us. There is much we don't know, much we don't understand. But he has given us much here for us to spend our days pouring over, to understand better and better, to build us up in the faith. And so let us hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. He is the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the son of David, the Savior. He is none other than the eternal Son of God who took human flesh upon himself to save sinners. Place your hope here. See that it is sure. And let us worship our God for his wisdom and his mercy in saving sinners. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you praise and thanks. For you have given us your word by which we know you in a saving way. Father, I pray that every person here, young and old, would believe this, would place their whole hope in Christ Jesus, and no confidence in the flesh. 
Father, may it be that no person here would be dismissive of these things, ever. Father, we pray that you build our faith and our confidence in you, that we would be hopeful in this life and have courage as needed and that we would not fear man. Father, we thank you that though we have sinned against you, and it is worthy of eternal judgment in hell. That you are yet merciful in Christ Jesus. And that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we could not do anything on our own. We were your enemies. Until you opened our eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. So we praise you and thank you for your act of kindness and mercy to draw us to yourself. God, we thank you. We pray that you would comfort us in these truths. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.